0: For every Southern boy 14 years old, not once, but whenever he wants it, there is the instant when it's still not yet two o'clock on that July afternoon in 1863. The brigades are in position behind the rail fence, the guns are laid and ready in the woods, and the furled flags are already loosened to break out and Pickett himself with his long-oiled ringlets and his hat in one hand, probably in his sword in the other, looking up the hill, waiting for Longstreet to give the word, and it's all in the balance. It hasn't happened yet. It hasn't even begun yet. It not only hasn't begun yet, but there is still time for it not to begin against that position and those circumstances which which... which made more men than Garnet and Kemper and Armistead and Wilcox look grave, yet it's going to begin. We all know that. We have come too far with too much at stake, and that moment doesn't need even a 14-year-old boy to think. This time, maybe this time, with all this much to lose and all this much to gain, Pennsylvania, Maryland, the world, the Golden Dome of Washington itself to crown with desperate and unbelievable victory, the desperate gamble, The cast made two years ago. William Faulkner, Intruder in the Dust. This is CJ. Welcome to episode 139 of the Dangerous History Podcast, Gettysburg, The Not-So-Civil War Part 7. I know it's been a while since I did a regular DHP episode, and there's been a variety of reasons for it that I won't get into too much to bore you here. But of course, part of it is I did a big Patreon bonus episode about the naval aspects of this war. Part of it is that the past month or so work has been really kind of overwhelming for me. By work, I mean the day job, and also because I've been doing a lot of research and things for upcoming Dangerous History podcast episodes, but haven't gotten to record any in a while. And I've been sick, too. One of my kids got me sick over about the past week or so, and that slowed me down as well. But I'm back here with the next installment in our Not-So-Civil War series, and this one is mostly focused on the Battle of Gettysburg and a few other things that are kind of related to it. And while it's modest in size as a battle compared to some of the battles of World War I and World War II, for example, Gettysburg is still, to this day, the largest battle ever fought in the Western Hemisphere in terms of total numbers of men who participated. This is probably the most well-known and most studied campaign and battle of the entire war, so it's going to be difficult for me to add much to the story, really, but I'll do my best to at least make my retelling of it interesting and entertaining, and who knows, maybe you'll still, even if you are a Civil War buff, learn something new about it along the way. Real quick, though, before I launch into the episode, Patreon shoutouts thanks to the following awesome individuals. For stepping up to support the show at patreoncom cj Thanks to Chris, John, Rowdy, Link, Lucy, Scott, Jesse, Paul, Rick, Brian, Jeffrey, Matt, Randy, Jordan and Robert. Thank you all very much. and a few Amazon wish list thank yous, people who've gotten me stuff from the Amazon wish list. Thanks to listener Amon over in Ireland, which, by the way, I'll be visiting again in the first week and a half or so of May who ordered me a bunch of books for St. Patrick's Day. He ordered me Bananas, How the United Fruit Company Shaped the World, The True Flag, Theodore Roosevelt, Mark Twain, and the Birth of the American Empire, and also A Distant Mirror, The Calamitous 14th Century. And also thanks to a mystery benefactor for getting me Money and Power, How Goldman Sachs Came to Rule the World. Not sure who that's from, but whoever it was, thank you very much. Okay, so before I start getting into the Gettysburg campaign, I want to talk briefly about a few more generals that I've either not mentioned yet at all in this series, or I've mentioned them in passing in regards to some things they did, but didn't give a ton of detail about them. So first, a few Confederates who have some importance to the Gettysburg campaign, whom I've not talked about in depth yet. The first is General James Longstreet, who was born in 1821 and actually lived until 1904. Longstreet was born in South Carolina and attended West Point, where he was apparently a discipline problem and a lackluster student academically. He graduated third from the bottom out of a class of 56 students in 1842. However, while at West Point, he was apparently popular and made friends with a number of cadets who later also went on to be Civil War generals for one side or the other, including Ulysses Grant. Longstreet served with distinction and received several brevet promotions in the Mexican War in the 1840s. And at a battle in 1847, he was wounded in the leg while carrying his regiment's colors, and it was his friend George Pickett who also plays a key role at Gettysburg, who actually picked up the colors from him and carried them up the hill that they were storming. Like so many Confederate political and military leaders, Longstreet hadn't really been keen on secession, but of course, like so many of them, once it happened and the war was on, he resigned his commission in the U.S. Army, in which he was a major at the time, in 1861 to join the Confederates. By the time of the Seven Days Battles in 1862, Longstreet had become one of Lee's most trusted subordinates. Lee even called Longstreet his old war horse. For most of the war, Longstreet commanded one of the corps of the Army of Northern Virginia, which for the first couple years of the war had two corps, and then after that had three Longstreet also served in Tennessee with Braxton Bragg for a little while, and he made significant contributions to a lot of major battles of the war, including Second Manassas, Fredericksburg, and Chickamauga, just to name a few. And he was with Lee up through the surrender at Appomattox at the end of the war. Often Longstreet preferred to go on the tactical defensive in battle because he seems to have grasped more so than did Lee how often just playing defense gave one a significant advantage in battle given the technologies of the Civil War. However, he sometimes contrasted with Stonewall Jackson unfavorably, with Longstreet being portrayed as being a bit too slow and cautious by comparison with Jackson. After the war, many Confederates and Southerners in general, particularly those who were drinkers of the mythology of Robert E. Lee and who believed in the so-called lost cause mythology of the South that I'll probably explore in some detail towards the end of this series, a lot of these sorts of Confederates came to despise Longstreet in part because after the war he became a Republican and because, as I mentioned, he had made friends with Ulysses Grant while at West Point and kind of rekindled his friendship with Grant after the war was over a bit. And let's be honest, the Negativity towards Longstreet by many Southerners is in part simply to have someone to scapegoat for Lee's failure at Gettysburg, and the fact that Longstreet was the only really high-ranking commander in Lee's army who wasn't a Virginian himself certainly didn't help things either. However, in recent decades, Longstreet's reputation as a military tactician has generally been pretty favorable, with lots of military historians of this war believing that he was right to want to go on the tactical defensive as much as possible, and specifically in regard to his criticism of Lee's plans at Gettysburg, which of course we'll cover in this episode. Another Confederate general I want to mention briefly is George Pickett, who was born in 1825 and lived until 1875. He was born in Virginia and went to West Point, where he was the GOAT of 1846. And if you don't know what the GOAT is at West Point, it's the guy who comes in dead last in the class in terms of his academic record. The only other goat I know of off the top of my head who's famous to history was actually George Armstrong Custer, if I'm not mistaken. So graduating in 1846 meant that Pickett finished at West Point just in time to go off to the Mexican War, where, as I mentioned, he served alongside Longstreet and carried the regimental colors up a hill when Longstreet was wounded. Like Longstreet, Pickett continued to serve in the U.S. Army right on up through the outbreak of the Civil War when he resigned his commission as a captain in order to go with the Confederates and with his home state. He was very much a proud Virginian. Supposedly, one of the last things he said to his men before sending them off on the famous charge that bears his name at Gettysburg was something to the effect of, remember, boys, that you are all from Virginia. Pickett had a reputation as a bit of a dandy and always dressed immaculately in flashy uniforms and was known for his long drooping mustache and long curly hair and beard. And he, during the war, married a young lady who I think was somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 years or so younger than him, which was was a little bit of a, I wouldn't necessarily call it a scandal, but just kind of something that people sort of talked about and was, I don't know, for lack of a better term, sort of a thing. Pickett had served well in several campaigns in 1861 and 62, and he was wounded during the Seven Days Battles and taken out of action for a while. And when he returned to the Army of Northern Virginia after Antietam, which he was out of action for that battle, he was given command of a division of Longstreet's corps. Pickett and his division, however, would Only see a little bit of action at Fredericksburg and missed out on Chancellorsville entirely, because if you'll recall from that episode a while back, Longstreet and his corps were away for that one, posted to kind of southeastern Virginia. So when the Gettysburg campaign came around, Pickett hadn't really seen significant action in a while, and he was really chomping at the bit to get into a big fight. His division arrived at Gettysburg towards the end of the second day of fighting, so had really not been bloodied during the first two days. And as a result, they were selected to spearhead the famous Confederate assault at Cemetery Ridge that would go down in history as Pickett's charge. And after that battle, at least according to some sources, Pickett always kind of had a grudge against Lee, for what happened to his division at Gettysburg, although there are some sources that say that that's not really the case, that the two had a a reasonably okay relationship in the years after the war. But regardless, Pickett continued to serve in Lee's army right on up through Appomattox. A couple of Union generals I want to mention briefly. One is George Gordon Meade, who was born in 1815 and lived until 1872. Meade was born in Spain, actually because his father was there at the time, working for the U.S. government. His father was a merchant from Pennsylvania. Meade attended West Point and graduated around the middle of his class, which was the class of 1835. Meade distinguished himself in both the Second Seminole War and also the Mexican War, and he actually left the army for a little while after the Seminole War, but returned to it a few years before the Mexican War broke out. He spent a lot of his career after that war surveying coastlines and being involved with designing and constructing lighthouses, those sorts of things, which was actually common for an American military officer back then. Because other than the two-year war with Mexico, it was basically either kind of like military and civil engineering projects or the occasional Indian war. At the start of the Civil War, Meade was promoted from captain to brigadier general in the U.S. Army in command of some Pennsylvania volunteers. Early in the Civil War, he commanded first a brigade and then division of the Army of the Potomac. His men were often among the most competent in the Army of the Potomac. Meade was wounded during the Seven Days Battles. His division was generally one of the better performing ones within the army of the potomac for much of its major battles including it was one of the divisions that did relatively better at the battle of fredericksburg meade took command of the entire army of the potomac just three days before the battle of gettysburg and yet as we'll see he managed to defeat the much vaunted army of northern virginia However, Meade came under intense criticism, both at the time and ever since, for not following up aggressively enough against Lee's army after the victory at Gettysburg, and thereby missing a potential chance to knock out Lee's army. Meade had a reputation for having a bit of a temper, and he wasn't particularly good at playing politics or handling the media, the press, but he remained in nominal command of the Army of the Potomac right up through the end of the war, although really that position didn't mean that much because during 1864 and 65, Ulysses Grant, whom Lincoln had promoted to general-in-chief of all Union forces, personally Supervised the Army of the Potomac's operations in the East. So essentially, Grant functioned as the overall field commander of the Army of the Potomac for practical purposes, with Meade basically just kind of like his second in command. And the two had a somewhat friction filled relationship due to Meade not always being very heartily on board with Grant's costly, aggressive strategy of attrition that will get to when we cover the period during which Grant was commanding the forces in the East. Like Longstreet, on the Confederate side, after a couple years of this war, Meade had come to the conclusion that frontal assaults were often tactically stupid and a useless waste of lives. So, what were the states of the two main armies in the East in the lead-up to what became the Battle of Gettysburg in kind of the early summer of 1863? Well, first, let's talk about the Army of Northern Virginia, Lee's Army. If you'll recall, where we last left off major operations in the East, the Confederates had won an impressive tactical victory at the Battle of Chancellorsville in late April, early May 1863, but they'd won that victory at a great cost, suffering almost as many casualties as the other side. General James Longstreet, whose corps had been detached from Lee's army and away in southeastern Virginia during the Battle of Chancellorsville, had returned by mid-May, and Lee's army was significantly reorganized at that point due to the death of Stonewall Jackson it would now be split into three rather than just two corps. Longstreet would still command the first corps, Richard Ewell would command the second corps, which had been Jackson's, and A.P. Hill would command the new third corps, and of course Jeb Stuart would remain the commander of Lee's cavalry. Total strength of Lee's forces prior to the Gettysburg campaign was approximately 75,000 men. In the aftermath of Chancellorsville, Confederate President Jefferson Davis was initially inclined to send some of Lee's army west to, in some way or another, kind of directly or indirectly, try to help relieve Vicksburg from Ulysses Grant's attack, which, remember, is something we covered previously in Gibraltar of the Confederacy. Longstreet agreed with this notion as well, but Lee persuaded Davis and overruled Longstreet, getting the green light instead of sending some of his army out to reinforce the West to invade up into Pennsylvania. Now, why would Lee want to do this? Well, for starters, he hoped that by invading enemy territory, he would enable his army to live off the countryside by confiscating food and other supplies from the very productive agricultural lands of central Pennsylvania. Because if he didn't do this, if he didn't put his army somewhere else, his army would remain in northern Virginia, where the countryside was already stripped pretty clean due to having both Lee's army and the Army of the Potomac constantly operating in northern Virginia over the last couple of years. Now, this, in my mind, is the only reason for this operation that really makes a whole lot of logical sense. And, of course, that alone should not have been the main reason to undertake an operation that really, from Lee's perspective, was so risky. But, of course, Lee is a risk taker. He's a gambler. And sometimes it pays off. But, of course, not always. Even the best gamblers sometimes lose. Now, in addition to living off the land of the North, Lee believed that if he scored a decisive victory against the Army of the Potomac on northern soil, that this might tip northern public opinion against the war and bring the Union government to terms regarding southern independence. Now, to me, at first glance, this seems plausible. He's looking at the political dimension of the war, which you always should take into account if you're a military commander. But... To me, this seems kind of stupid in terms of timing, because 1863 was not an election year in the North. 1864 would be. And, of course, elections in the United States don't happen until November. So the election isn't just going to be in 1864. It's going to be almost at the end of 1864. A decisive victory in 1863, in the middle of 1863, while it might have affected public opinion, would not necessarily have caused the Lincoln administration to halt their war effort. And furthermore to that, a massive Union defeat might have redoubled the administration's efforts to prosecute the war more severely. And if the right propaganda was used, it might even galvanize public opinion to fight harder rather than to give up sort of like some of the other defeats had done. Or, you know, if you want to look back to earlier examples of this, every time Hannibal defeated a Roman army, the Romans would come back, you know, harder to fight him. Because the North certainly had the population to keep the war going, even in the face of major defeats, as long as the will to do so remained on the part of the administration. And based on what had been done so far, I don't see any reason that It's rational to expect that the Lincoln administration would have backed down. Um, Instead, what would have happened is they would have had almost a year and a half to try to bounce back and try to regain momentum in time for the 1864 elections. Because to me, the realistic possibilities for Southern independence would have revolved around two scenarios. One is to get significant uh, assistance and diplomatic recognition, maybe even military assistance from countries like France and Britain. And the other is to score a significant victory close enough to the 1864 election that it might tip the balance. Barring that, I mean, there's just no way, despite Lee's always uh, fantasizing about Scoring the decisive victory where he annihilates the Army of the Potomac, that's not realistic when you have an army that outnumbers you by 50% or more. But that's what he thought. Again, Lee had always been a tactical gambler in his career in this war, and more often than not, it had panned out so far in his favor. Though still, he'd suffered enough snafus that he'd never achieved that decisive victory that he'd been searching for since the Peninsula Campaign in 1862. But now, with the Pennsylvania invasion, Lee wasn't just making a tactical gamble, he was making a strategic gamble. So he cowed Davis and overruled Longstreet, and so in mid-June, Lee's army began to cross the Potomac River from northern Virginia into Maryland. As far as the Army of the Potomac, the state of that army in early summer of 1863, General Joseph Hooker remained in command of the Army of the Potomac for months, even after his disaster at Chancellorsville, and he made relatively few changes to his subordinate command structure despite that disaster. He even kept General Oliver Howard in his position despite Howard's key role in the Union loss at Chancellorsville. During this time, the Army of the Potomac had around 100,000 effectives in its ranks, and as always, it remained extremely well supplied in contrast to Lee's army. When Lee began moving northward, Hooker initially wanted to take the opportunity to move on Richmond, but Lincoln and Halleck vetoed this, in part over concern of Washington, D.C., so Hooker instead began pursuing Lee on a course that would try to keep his army in between Lee and Washington. Hooker, during this time, continued to quarrel with General-in-Chief Henry Halleck, who'd lost confidence in fighting Joe, and during this quarrel and kind of a dramatic fit, Fighting Joe Hooker offered his resignation on June 28th, and Lincoln and Halleck accepted it immediately. Hooker's replacement, of course, would be George Meade, who had previously commanded the 5th Corps in the Army of the Potomac. Taking command, Meade began moving his army north as fast as he could to pursue the Army of Northern Virginia. (music) In Pennsylvania, Robert E. Lee gave strict orders to his men to not pillage northern civilians and made sure these orders were highly publicized, no doubt to try to show his army's moral superiority and also to maybe set an example that later Union invaders of Virginia might follow. Lee said of this issue, "...no greater disgrace can befall the army, and through it our whole people, than the perpetration of barbarous outrages upon the innocent and defenseless. Such proceedings not only disgrace the perpetrators and all connected with them, but are subversive of the discipline and efficiency of the army and destructive of the ends of our movement." However, while Lee's forces never torched a town, or engaged in the large scale systematic destruction in the style of, say, William Tecumseh Sherman, there was certainly some plundering of private property carried out by some Confederate soldiers. And in addition to that, while, while that kind of behavior was technically violating Lee's orders, but obviously some people did it and got away with it anyway, even in the above board way, kind of carrying out the official policy of the Confederate Army, the Confederates did confiscate supplies of all sorts from private citizens and private companies. And notice the word confiscate, meaning not voluntarily contract for. Now, they forced sale, essentially. They did pay, but of course they paid with Confederate IOUs and Confederate paper money that was already not worth much certainly not in Pennsylvania. And the Pennsylvanians, no doubt, were not at all excited about taking these Confederate notes in return for their property that was confiscated from them. And the last thing I'll say about the Confederates' behavior towards civilians in Pennsylvania is that Confederate soldiers kidnapped Black people that they found, including those who were freeborn, not just those that they would have had proof were former slaves who had escaped, But pretty much any black person they found was liable to be captured, kidnapped, and sent south to be sold. One Confederate officer actually wrote of this practice, quote, We took a lot of Negroes yesterday. I was offered my choice, but as I could not get them back home, I would not take them. In fact, my humanity revolted at taking the poor devils away from their homes. They were so scared that I turned them all loose, end quote. However, not all the blacks taken by Confederate troops in Pennsylvania were so lucky as those freed by that one officer who was abnormally bothered by this behavior. Most Confederate soldiers seem to have thought it was just fine. And while I don't think there are exact numbers available, at least in the neighborhood of 40 or 50 black people in Pennsylvania were captured by the Confederates and sent south into slavery. Now, I want to briefly mention a little bit about what was going on with the Confederate cavalry. Prior to the invasion of Pennsylvania, Jeb Stuart, Lee's cavalry commander, had been caught by surprise by Union cavalry on June 9th at Brandy Station, Virginia. And the resulting battle there turned into the biggest cavalry versus cavalry battle of the war without any significant infantry participation on either side. Stuart had a bit under 10,000 men, whereas the Union cavalry there had around 11,000 men, so as usual, a Union advantage, but in this case, not much, and the battle turned into a draw, and Stuart really felt embarrassed at being caught by surprise by Union cavalry, because up till this point in the war in the East, he had not been very impressed by Union cavalry at all, and it generally got the better of them and often made them look like fools, So, in part because he had been surprised by the Union cavalry and wanted to redeem himself and his reputation, Jeb Stuart asked for and received permission from Lee to take most of the Confederate cavalry and make a big raid around the Army of the Potomac, trying to repeat the sort of daring cavalry operations that he'd previously done so deftly against McClellan, in which he'd really... Severely disrupted the Union Army's supplies and communications, and gained valuable intelligence on the enemy's whereabouts, and confiscated supplies and so on in the process. Lee's order said that Stewart was supposed to stay in regular contact while doing this, but it also gave Stewart some leeway to make decisions, and so as a result, Stewart would be gone and out of contact for a while at the very time Lee was moving into Northern Territory. And this is going to mean that Lee's army will be operating in enemy country without the usual screen of cavalry out ahead of the infantry to act as the eyes and ears of his army. So in a way, I mean, you know, he has some maps of the area and whatever, but in terms of what's really going on as far as where are the enemy forces located, etc., lee is going to be operating essentially blind on the gettysburg campaign now as for george meade when he took command of the army of the potomac like i said the army had probably a little over a hundred thousand men and this was organized into seven corps of infantry and one corps of cavalry so bigger than the confederate forces organized into more units and of course as always much better supplied When Meade took command, the Army of the Potomac was near Frederick, Maryland, and most of Lee's army was actually already 40 miles or so northward in Pennsylvania, and so Meade began moving his army as quickly as he could to close in towards where Lee was. So without necessarily intending to, at least certainly not on the part of either commander of either army, the two armies began kind of converging gradually towards the town of Gettysburg, in part because Gettysburg had somewhere between between, uh, 10 and 12 major roads that converged through the town from pretty much all directions. On June 29th, Lee, whose army was at that point actually strung out over quite a bit of distance, learned from a scout scout who was working for Longstreet, that in fact the Army of the Potomac was quickly headed north, closing in towards the Army of Northern Virginia. And so Lee started trying to concentrate his army together, minus Stuart's cavalry, of course, who were still off incommunicado, and to gather his army together at the town of Cashtown. On June 30th, a brigade of Confederates set out from Cashtown to the town of Gettysburg, supposedly on a supply run, because they had heard there was a large quantity of shoes in Gettysburg, and a lot of Confederates either had no shoes or really subpar shoes, and here they were an opportunity to get some well-made Yankee pairs of shoes. You can see how this would really be alluring to a bunch of footsore infantrymen. When this brigade set out, they were told not to start any major engagements, however, in part because Lee's army was still kind of trying to gather itself together. As that brigade approached Gettysburg, they saw some Union cavalry in town, and so they decided to pull back to Cashtown without a fight because of those orders that I just mentioned. The next day, July 1st, 1863, would be the first real day of the Battle of Gettysburg, which is going to spread over the course of a total of three days. On July 1st, two brigades of Confederate troops went into Gettysburg, essentially on what was a reconnaissance-in-force type of a mission. They weren't quite sure what they had seen in Gettysburg as far as Union troops. Some of them realized it was cavalry, others I think got the impression it was just some sort of local militia unit or something. And still, a big part of their mission was to try and confiscate a bunch of shoes from the town if they could find them. In a way, what these two brigades were doing was kind of what the Confederate cavalry was supposed to be doing if Stuart hadn't disappeared and gone out of contact. These Confederate brigades ran into the Union cavalry who were there, who were commanded by a general named John Buford, who was a cavalry commander with extensive experience fighting Indians out west. Buford had placed his cavalry division atop some ridges to the west of the town of Gettysburg with the plan of fighting a delaying action for as long as they could when the Confederates arrived, if they arrived, so that hopefully Union infantry would get there in large numbers. They'd have enough time to get there in large numbers before The Confederates were able to dislodge Buford's forces and occupy all of the strategic hills and ridges outside of Gettysburg. Buford's men were trained to be able to fight effectively dismounted for situations like this, where they would be defensively holding a position rather than doing some sort of hit-and-run, quick-maneuvering sort of operation. When those two brigades of Confederate troops started to get into a fight with Buford's cavalry, both sides, the Union cavalry and the Confederate infantry, sent back to their respective commanders for all the reinforcements they could get in the area. And thus, the big battle would occur at a place that, like I kind of said before, neither of the two top commanders would have expected or necessarily intended it to have occurred just a day or two before. But two things about Gettysburg made it ultimately the site of the biggest battle of this war and the biggest battle in the history of the Western Hemisphere. One I've already mentioned specifically, and another I've alluded to. And the first is that, like I said, somewhere around a dozen roads converged on the town from every direction. And secondly, that all around the town almost were very defensible hills and ridges. The first Confederate reinforcements to reach the area were General Richard Ewell's corps, and they spearheaded the Confederate assaults that initially seemed quite successful. They pushed the cavalry of Buford back through the town and kind of down towards the south of it. But while the Confederates did succeed in dislodging Buford's cavalry from some of the ridges west of town... Buford managed to hold enough of the heights outside town long enough for Union infantry under General John Reynolds to start to arrive, and in particular, they were able to occupy some key positions south of town. After the rest of the Battle of Gettysburg played out, Buford would be involved in pursuing the Confederates back towards Virginia, and thereafter carried out some successful operations in northern Virginia, but died of illness in December of 1863. As for General John Reynolds, who was at the time one of the most promising generals in the Union Army, he took a bullet and died on the morning of the first day at Gettysburg. In fact, not long after he arrived there to reinforce Buford. While he was leading his infantry into position, he was hit by a sharpshooter's bullet. General Winfield Scott Hancock would Take command of Union forces at Gettysburg when he arrived that afternoon and kind of held command until the arrival of Meade himself. Scott surveyed the high ground that the Union forces had taken control of and decided to hold it. He decided that it was absolutely ideal terrain to fight a defensive battle. Meanwhile, Robert E. Lee had arrived that afternoon as well and also understood the strength of that high ground south of Gettysburg that the Union troops were currently parked on. He sent orders to Ewell that said he should attack those positions to try to kick the Federals out of them, as at that moment the Confederates actually had a slight numerical advantage at the point of contact. However, Lee's orders contained the discretionary caveat that Ewell should attack, quote, if practicable. And basically, Ewell decided that it was not practicable and that his men needed rest after a long, arduous march. And this has been controversial ever since. Many critics at the time and historians ever since have argued that Ewell missed a golden opportunity to seize the heights when they weren't that heavily defended, and that if Stonewall Jackson had still been alive, he'd have been much more likely to strike hard and fast and maybe have taken those heights. Others have criticized Lee for giving open-ended orders, which he often did. Now, in a lot of cases, this worked out okay. He had had quite a synergy with Jackson on a lot of operations, and so I think he was just used to having generals commanding his corps who kind of understood Lee's own approach to these things, and so he could give somewhat vague or open-ended orders, and then they'd be carried out properly. But of course, because of the death of Jackson and the reorganization of Lee's army, he couldn't necessarily count on them interpreting his orders the way he wanted them to, and so it was perhaps a significant error on Lee's part to not give orders that were a little bit more specific. Now, if Stonewall Jackson had still been alive, would the Battle of Gettysburg gone differently? It's hard to say. There's so many other variables, and there certainly were some occasions, such as the Seven Days Battles, when Jackson was uncharacteristically hesitant and late in carrying out attacks. So, who knows? Gettysburg might have been one of those days for him. On the other hand, it might have been a day more like what we think of Stonewall Jackson doing, where he's moving fast and striking hard and decisively and all these sorts of things. So who knows? When Confederate General James Longstreet arrived on the scene to find that the Union still held the high ground south of town, he counseled against attacking those positions frontally and instead argued in favor of maneuvering around those hills and ridges and getting in between the Army of the Potomac and Washington, D.C., and then kind of looking for a good strategic piece of ground for the Confederates to occupy under the belief that the Union Army would politically have to attack the Confederate Army if it was between them and D.C., Longstreet, who, if you'll recall, had been one of the main figures in the very lopsided Confederate victory at Fredericksburg just a few months earlier, wanted to try to do a repeat performance of that battle on an even larger scale. And to me, this seems quite sensible, but Lee did not agree. Lee decided to strike at the Army of the Potomac where it was, even though he still didn't have that great of intelligence due to the absence of Stuart. Now, the context as far as Lee's mindset is this. Lee was still coming off a combination of the high of the win at Chancellorsville, coupled with the feeling that the battle at Chancellorsville, while successful, had been an incomplete victory because he had failed to do what he was always trying to do, which is completely destroy the Army of the Potomac. Lee saw this battle in front of him here at Gettysburg as the chance to do just that, what he'd failed to do at Chancellorsville. He also knew that his army's morale was extremely high at the time, and he believed that if they made a strategic withdrawal to a defensive position of their own, that this would give his men's morale a serious hit. So Lee pointed to Cemetery Hill, which was the centerpiece of the Union position, and said to Longstreet, the enemy is there, and I am going to attack him there. To which Longstreet said, if he is there, it will be because he is anxious that we should attack him a good reason in my judgment for not doing so. But Lee would have none of Longstreet's defensive tactics, and despite Longstreet's opposition to an assault on the Heights, Lee would give elements of his Corps, Longstreet's Corps, the job of conducting the main assault on the Union position the next day. Historian James McPherson describes Longstreet's situation and perceptions of his role in this battle as follows, quote, Longstreet's state of mind as he prepared for this attack is hard to fathom the only non-Virginian holding high command in the Army of Northern Virginia, and the only prominent Confederate general to join the post-war Republican Party, Longstreet became the target of withering criticism from Virginians after the war for insubordination and tardiness at Gettysburg. They held him responsible for losing the battle, and by implication, the war. Some of this criticism was self-serving, intended to shield Lee and other Virginians, mainly Stewart and Ewell, from blame but Longstreet did seem to move slowly at Gettysburg. Although Lee wanted him to attack as early in the day as possible, he did not get his troops into position until 4 p.m. There were extenuating reasons for this delay, yet Longstreet may have been piqued by Lee's rejection of his flanking suggestion, and he did not believe in the attack he was ordered to make. He therefore may not have put as much energy and speed into its preparation as the situation required." Over the course of the night and into the early morning of the following day, most of the rest of both armies made it to the vicinity of Gettysburg, and by then, George Meade had arrived sometime during the night to personally take command of the Army of the Potomac. So the situation at the start of the second day of Gettysburg was that the Union forces were on a series of ridges and hills south of the town itself in kind of an inverted fish hook shape. The right flank of the Union position was the shorter end of the fish hook, what would be the pointy end of the hook, and that was parked on a hill called Culp's Hill. The U-bend of the fish hook was on Cemetery Hill, and the long end of the hook, the shank, ran along Cemetery Ridge and terminated at two hills called Little Round Top and Big Round Top. Lee's plan was to launch attacks on both flanks and to try to take the heights on each flank of the Union line if possible, and Meade was determined to hold his position at all costs. Lee would have Ewell's corps make an attack on the Union right, but the primary attack would be carried out by Longstreet's corps, which hadn't been beat up on the first day as Ewell's had been. However, Ewell was supposed to convert his feint on the Union right into a full-on attack if it seemed that Longstreet's attack on the Union left was working and that Meade was shifting reserves to his left to reinforce that spot. So, in other words, Lee seems to have had in mind something along the lines of a Hannibal-style double envelopment maneuver with simultaneous or nearly simultaneous flanking attacks. However, unlike Hannibal at Cannae, or daniel morgan at calpins in the american revolution for that matter this was a very different situation because both hannibal and daniel morgan had first suckered the enemy into attacking their own center and then giving the appearance that their center was collapsing which then caused their opponents to overextend forward in the center and thereby make themselves vulnerable to simultaneous attacks on both flanks whereas in the case of what Lee was facing at Gettysburg, he was facing an enemy that was dug in on high ground, not charging recklessly forward. So, like I said, one of Longstreet's divisions was given the task of assaulting the Union left at the Roundtops, but as I mentioned a little while ago, I think, Longstreet was slow to get them in position, so they didn't attack until the afternoon. As they approached, they were surprised when they bumped into Union General Dan Sickles' corps. Sickles, who was a New York City politician, had actually disobeyed Meade's orders to hold the roundtops and had instead marched his corps a half mile out, leaving his men exposed in a position out ahead of the hills and therefore out ahead of the rest of the Union Army formation. From this vulnerable position, Sickles' corps were attacked ferociously by the Confederates Sickles himself was wounded and would lose a leg as a result. This part of the battle, some of which was taking place in a wheat field and a peach orchard, saw the fight seesaw back and forth as each side attacked and counterattacked. and some of the units on both sides engaged in this battle, this piece of the larger battle of Gettysburg, suffered more than three-quarter casualties." Like I said, Sickles himself was wounded. There was an artillery shell that took off the lower part of one of his legs, and as he was carried off on a stretcher, he puffed on a cigar, supposedly so that his men would see the smoke and know he was still alive, still breathing. The rest of his wounded leg was amputated, and he would keep the bones from it on the mantelpiece of his home in New York City for the rest of his days. And I gotta say, that's that's just a hell of a conversation piece. I mean, I think Sickles was a pretty crappy general, but I gotta say, I love the idea of you get wounded, and what's left of your leg gets amputated, and then you keep the bones out on display. For some reason, I just think that's cool as shit, but anyway. The Confederates were able to occupy Big Round Top, and from there saw that Little Round Top was unoccupied, and they quickly made plans to occupy it. At the same time, Union commanders saw that Little Round Top was unoccupied, and they quickly sent troops to occupy it as well, and the Bluecoats got the hill first. The end of the Union line at Little Round Top was formed by the 20th Maine Regiment, which was commanded by Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, and Chamberlain was ordered to hold this position at all costs. Chamberlain had been a professor of rhetoric at Bowdoin College prior to the war, and when the war began, he was very supportive of the Union cause, and he had ancestors who'd fought in both the War of 1812 and the American Revolution. In 1862, he took a leave of absence, supposedly, so he told his administration to go study in Europe, but instead he joined the Union Army. He was offered command of the 20th Maine Regiment as a full colonel, but he decided that because he was new to soldiering, it would be best if he started off as second in command to kind of learn the trade, and therefore he'd have the rank of lieutenant colonel at the start of his military career. Sort of similar to what Teddy Roosevelt did when he formed the Rough Riders and, at least initially, made himself second in command. Chamberlain's regiment had been at Fredericksburg and had to spend the night there, that freezing, bitter night, on the approach to Mary's Heights, using the bodies of their fallen comrades for shelter from both the elements and from Confederate bullets. Shortly before the Gettysburg campaign, Chamberlain had been promoted to full colonel in command of the 20th Maine Regiment because the regiment's previous colonel had himself been promoted to a higher level of command. So here's this college professor in charge of this Maine Regiment, ordered to hold the last bit of the Union line on Little Round Top and hold it at all costs, and they did that they fought off repeated charges by Confederates who outnumbered them at this particular point of contact. These were Alabamans, and they attacked repeatedly over the course of somewhere between one and a half and two hours. Chamberlain's men took staggering casualties, but held their ground even as they depleted their ammunition. And it was at this point that Chamberlain made himself one of the most famous Union heroes of the war by having his regiment execute a bayonet charge downhill, sweeping from left to right across their section of the hill as they did so. And it worked. The Confederates were completely taken by surprise by the fact that they were now the ones being charged, and around 400 of them quickly surrendered and others broke and ran for it. Chamberlain would be badly wounded at the Second Battle of Petersburg about a year later, and at the time it was believed he would likely die of his wounds, and he was promoted to Brigadier General as he lay on what everyone, including the doctors, assumed would be his deathbed. But somehow he managed to survive and ended up being the officer given the honor of accepting the surrender of Confederate soldiers at Appomattox in 1865. Chamberlain lived all the way until 1914 and, among other things in his post-war career, served as governor of Maine for a while. It was a brutal fight on Little Round Top between these loggers and fishermen from Maine and these mostly poor small farmers from Alabama. And it really illustrates the tragedy of this conflict that you've got essentially working class people of their respective places and respective ways of making a living. You've got these mostly poor farmers as the rank and file Confederates. And then you've got these, you know, kind of blue collar loggers and fishermen from Maine. And what are they trying to do? Well, they're trying to shoot each other and impale each other on bayonets and cavalry sabers and engaging in brutal close quarters fighting trying to crack each other's heads with musket butts, etc. And it's really just a rich man's war, poor man's fight. It's really just a dispute between the Southern oligarchs and the Northern oligarchs over whether or not the South will be taxed by D.C. or by Richmond. In a way, it's a microcosm of the entire tragedy of this conflict. Ultimately, despite both taking and inflicting brutal casualties during the second day, Longstreet's attack on the Union left flank, failed to dislodge them from the high ground there, and Ewell's attack on the right flank equally failed to seize any key positions. Over the course of day two of the Battle of Gettysburg, each side had suffered around 9,000 casualties, and very little had changed in terms of position. By the end of that day of fighting, Lee had attacked both Union flanks, but hadn't budged them. But Lee was determined the next day to launch a massive frontal attack on the Union Center. He believed that because he'd attacked both flanks on day two of the battle, that Meade would have reinforced those flanks and thereby perhaps weakened his center. Longstreet, no doubt remembering what had happened when the situation had been reversed and it had been the Confederates who were defending the high ground at Marie's Heights outside Fredericksburg, Longstreet heartily opposed this decision, but Lee decided not to listen to him. Longstreet later wrote of this, quote, My heart was heavy. I could see the desperate and hopeless nature of the charge and the hopeless slaughter it would cause. That day at Gettysburg was one of the saddest of my life, end quote. You have to understand that what Lee is planning to do on July 3rd, 1863, is something that is strikingly similar to and at least as stupid as what the much maligned and much ridiculed ambrose burnside had done at fredericksburg and yet lee is still often considered this genius Now, as for Meade commanding the other side, on the night of July 2nd, he asked his remaining top commanders whether they thought the army should stay put where they were or retreat to a different position, and they all wanted to stay, and Meade decided to heed their advice. Meade himself said that if Lee did attack again the next day, it would be directed at the Union Center, and of course he ended up being right. Historian James McPherson summarizes the performance of the two armies over the course of the second day of the battle as follows, The Confederate assaults on July 2 were uncoordinated and disjointed. The usual skill of generalship in the Army of Northern Virginia was lacking this day. On the Union side, by contrast, officers from Meade down to regimental colonels acted with initiative and coolness. They moved troops to the right spots and counterattacked at the right times. As a result, when night fell, the Union line remained firm, except for the loss of Sickles' salient. Each side had suffered 9,000 or more casualties, bringing the two-day totals for both armies to nearly 35,000. It was the heaviest single-battle toll in the war thus far, but the fight was not over. Which brings us to the third and final day— of the Battle of Gettysburg, July 3rd, 1863, a day which was dominated by the massive assault that gets known to history as Pickett's Charge. And of course, it gets its name from the fact that Lee decided that George Pickett's division of Longstreet's Corps would lead the charge at the Union Center planted on Cemetery Ridge. Lee really thought this would work. He thought that the morale of his men would overcome the Union's numbers and positions and firepower. He thought that he could launch a big enough artillery barrage to soften them up. He thought that they were weak in the center because Meade would have reinforced his flanks the previous day. And he didn't seem bothered by the fact that Pickett's charge would be against a numerically superior enemy dug in on high ground. At 1 p.m., the Confederates unleashed a massive artillery barrage against Union positions. For a while, the Union guns fired back, but then they stopped, in part because Meade and the other Union generals knew what was coming, and they actually wanted to give the impression that the Confederate barrage had been more effective than it really had been against the Union guns, and thereby kind of lure the Confederate infantry into executing the charge so that the Union artillery could then fire at them more effectively as they came in. The Confederate artillery was actually at quite a disadvantage in this battle, and not just the usual one of numerical disadvantage that they pretty much always faced, but they had this additional problem in that the factory in Richmond that had made their fuses for most of the war up to this point had not too long previously been damaged by a fire, and so the fuses that the Confederate artillery was equipped with at Gettysburg were made in a factory in Charleston and were not of the exact same type. They were slower burning, and the result of this was that most of the Confederate shrapnel barrage that was intended to decimate the Union front lines actually went over their intended targets. So, long story short, the Confederate artillery barrage that was supposed to soften things up for Pickett's charge did way less damage than the Confederates thought and hoped it would. At around 2 p.m., as the Confederate artillery were starting to run low on ammunition, Pickett asked Longstreet if he should proceed with his attack. Longstreet was so distraught at what he believed was the futility of the charge that he couldn't speak. He simply nodded his head. Three divisions spearheaded by Pickett's began marching up across the open ground towards Cemetery Ridge over a mile away. James McPherson describes the scene as follows, quote, It was a magnificent mile-wide spectacle, a picture-book view of war that participants on both sides remembered with awe until their dying moment, which, for many of them, came within the next hour. Pickett's Charge represented the Confederate war effort in microcosm, matchless valor, apparent initial success, and ultimate disaster. Of the 14,000 Confederates who had gone forward, scarcely half-returned. End quote. In the lower part of Cemetery Ridge were 41 Union artillery pieces that had not been visible to the Confederate artillery because of the undulations of the ground, and as a result, the Confederate artillery hadn't targeted these pieces at all, and they were completely untouched. They also just happened to be in a perfect position to blast holes in Pickett's Charge once the men came at close range, and they did so. As the Confederates closed in and came under absolutely devastating fire, blasting ranks in their lines, the Union soldiers began yelling, Fredericksburg! Fredericksburg! Confederate infantrymen were simply mowed down by a combination of artillery and small arms fire. Even though there aren't machine guns and things like that yet, in many ways it reminds me of the British assault That began the Battle of the Somme in 1916, where you have these men very bravely and gallantly walking off over open ground to attack a position they have no chance of ever taking and then getting mowed down like grass. Most Confederate soldiers who participated in Pickett's Charge didn't even make it past the stone wall near the base of the heights. Only at one spot where there was a corner in the wall that was called the Angle did a few hundred Confederates, led by General Lewis Armistead, make it close enough to actually engage in some close quarters bayonet combat, but they were quickly taken care of. Armistead himself was killed, and all of his men who'd made it past the wall became casualties, either killed, wounded, or captured. In total, 50% of the men who had participated in Pickett's charge became casualties of one type or another within the space of less than an hour. As the survivors were straggling back towards the Confederate lines, Robert E. Lee walked out to them saying things like, it is all my fault. When he told Pickett to prepare for a possible Union counterattack, Pickett said, General Lee, I have no division. And according to many, Pickett would never forgive Lee for the rest of his life. All told, over the course of all three days, the Battle of Gettysburg resulted in about 51,000 casualties, with a bit more than half, approximately 28,000 of them being Confederate and about 23,000 being Union casualties. Now remember, casualties includes wounded, captured and missing as well as killed. And so like all Civil War battles, the percentage of casualties who were actually KIAs was a fairly small minority of the total. Usually the percentage of casualties who were actually killed in a Civil War battle ran between about 10 and 15 percent. And the Battle of Gettysburg, this was around 15 percent. So it was on the high side, but not outlandishly. So it was like on the high normal side, you might say. But because of the size of the battle, of the huge numbers of men involved, it ended up being a staggering death toll. Over 3,000 Union soldiers killed and over 4,500 Confederate soldiers killed. But of course, proportionally, the Confederates were much harder hit because the Army of Northern Virginia had only been at most three quarters as large as the Army of the Potomac on the eve of this battle. And this meant that Lee had lost around a third of his army over the course of three days. And the ratio was reflected amongst the officers as well. Around a third of the officers of the Army of Northern Virginia were casualties. And over the course of the entire Gettysburg campaign, the Army of Northern Virginia and the Army of the Potomac had each lost five generals killed. The following day, July 4th, a Union soldier from Massachusetts surveyed the battlefield and, apparently filled with empathy for the fallen from the other side, as so many soldiers were in this war after the heat of battle passed, he wrote of the scene, quote, Many hundreds of the enemy's dead were still lying where they fell. As we passed over that field of blood and death in a thoughtful silence, we looked upon those upturned youthful faces, and as we saw no trace of passion or of hate, our minds would wander unbidden, away, off to that southern home, and picture a fond mother who on bended knees is fervently asking God's blessing to rest on her darling soldier boy. And as we spread our mantle of charity over them, we murmur, My brother, rest in peace. End quote. The day after Pickett's charge, July 4, 1863, heavy rains came in. The two armies continued to face each other and did their best to tend their wounded, Lee pulling what was left of his battered force together in a defensive position to fight off a possible Union counterattack, and Meade never pulling the trigger on such an attack. He would be heavily criticized for doing this, though to be fair, the weather was bad and his own army, while victorious, had been pretty beat up over the three days of fighting as well. And he seems to have refrained from a massive counterattack, partly out of some amount of respect for Lee's army, and he said something to a subordinate to the effect that he didn't want to do something as foolish as what Lee had done in terms of frontally attacking an enemy. In other words, he seems to have been concerned that despite the beating they'd given Lee's army, if they charged in against them, they might still face significant damage of their own. In the evening, Lee's army began moving out. Meade's army pursued, but kind of slowly and cautiously. Throughout the Confederacy, there was despair at this disaster, especially combined with the fall of Vicksburg, which, remember, happened just the day after the last day of Gettysburg. Josiah Gorgas, who was the chief of the Confederacy's Ordnance Department, and who was usually an optimist during the war, wrote, quote, "...events have succeeded one another with disastrous rapidity. One brief month ago, we were apparently at the point of success. Lee was in Pennsylvania, threatening Harrisburg and even Philadelphia. Vicksburg seemed to laugh all Grant's efforts to scorn. Port Hudson had beaten off Banks's force." Now the picture is just as somber as it was bright then. It seems incredible that human power could effect such a change in so brief a space. Yesterday we wrote on the pinnacle of success, today absolute ruin seems to be our portion. The Confederacy totters to its destruction. Within a month of the Battle of Gettysburg, Lee wrote Jefferson Davis an offer to resign his command, but Davis wouldn't accept it. In the North, of course, the press was, for the most part, jubilant. The Philadelphia Inquirer, for example, had a headline after the battle that read, Waterloo Eclipsed. And the fact, again, that Vicksburg fell just the day after Pickett's Charge only added to the sense of triumph. As you might imagine, it was a huge Fourth of July celebration in the North in 1863, and in many places in the North it lasted into the following week. It's kind of ironic when you think about it that they were blending the celebration of the Thirteen Colonies' successful secession into celebrating the North's victory and trying to prevent the South from seceding, showing how people often, back then as much as today, have a tendency to turn Independence Day celebrations into really just kind of generic celebrations of nationalism, rather than making the Fourth of July really about the at least supposed ideals of the American Revolution— ideas of national self-determination, and so on. On July 7th, Lincoln gave an address in which he said that the real importance of the 4th of July was that, quote, for the first time in the history of the world, a nation by its representatives assembled and declared as a self-evident truth that all men are created equal. On this last 4th of July past, when we have a gigantic rebellion at the bottom of which is an effort to overthrow the principle that all men are created equal, we have the surrender of a most powerful position, referring to Vicksburg, and not only so, but in a succession of battles in Pennsylvania near to us through three days, so rapidly fought that they might be called one great battle, and on the fourth, the cohorts of those who opposed the declaration that all men are created equal turned tail and ran. End quote. So Lincoln's argument was the entire message of the American Revolution and the Declaration of Independence was all men are created equal. That's all you need to know. Rather ahistorical, but that's what he said, and of course, Many people throughout the North lapped it right up. However, despite these victories, not all was well within the North, and not everyone was on board for Lincoln's policies. Many were, in particular, very angry over a combination of the Emancipation Proclamation and the military draft. And on July 13th, in New York City, angry mobs of mostly disgruntled working-class Irish immigrants began rioting after the drawing of names for military conscription. Hundreds of working-class immigrants, led by the men of Volunteer Firefighter Company 33, began throwing rocks through the windows of the draft office. Police showed up, and the rioters fought them off, and they also fought off firefighters who arrived later to try to fight a fire that they had caused. Then the rioters simply went on a rampage, in which they burned the homes of leading Republicans in the city, and they also attacked and lynched random black people. There's at least one instance recorded of a black person being lynched and set on fire after being hung from a tree. The rioters even went and burned down a black orphanage. Understandably, many of the black residents of New York City fled the city, literally fleeing for their lives as refugees. The rioters went to various places and demanded alcohol, and when they went to a hotel called the Bull's Head Hotel and the employees of the hotel refused to give them booze, the rioters burned the hotel down. This orgy of violence went on for four days, during which time Lincoln diverted some 4,000 troops fresh off the Gettysburg campaign to come put the riots down. Many of the Union troops who came into New York to turn their guns on these rioting civilians expressed at least as much glee in doing so as they did in fighting the Confederates. One Union soldier wrote of his unit's artillery, quote, Those guns are slotted for close actions, and the men that handle them are in the habit of obeying the orders of their officers without asking questions. Indeed, we are all united in this sentiment, namely that the enemies of our flag must be conquered wherever met. More than 100 people altogether would be killed various ways by this violence and the wounded were not even sure but probably numbered in the neighborhood of 2000 by the time the riot was suppressed it's still as far as i know the worst riot in american history the protestant quote-unquote native elites in new york who were predominantly republican who obviously tended to side strongly with lincoln and against the rioters Often frame their criticisms in explicitly prejudiced racial, ethnic sorts of terms against the rioters, who were mostly, like I said, Irish Catholic immigrants and therefore Democrats and no fans of Lincoln's war. So, just to give you an example of the language that was used, you know, that they weren't just criticizing the rioters for the violence and for them victimizing random innocent people, including uh, a lot of black people. But to then cast this into a larger kind of ethno-nationalistic sort of terminology, the New York Evangelist newspaper published an editorial about the riots that said, quote, In looking over the long list of killed and wounded, we find scarcely an American name. They are almost all Irishmen. They were especially conspicuous in the hunting, burning, and hanging of poor Negroes. At such times, we cannot forget that these Irish, who thus attack a part of our population, are all foreigners, while the Negroes whom they hunt like fiends are natives of the soil, Americans by birth, that have a far better right here than this scum of a foreign population, end quote. I mean, on the one hand, it's kind of nice that they're saying good things about the black people and that they... They don't use the word citizens, but they that, that um, editorial basically says or implies that black people should have kind of basic citizenship rights. But then to dehumanize all immigrants or at least all Irish immigrants as scum based on the actions of these rioters, it's, you know, it's like they're incapable of not being racist against somebody. <laughs> to talk a little bit about the most famous piece of oratory in American history the Gettysburg Address which was delivered on November 19th 1863 at the dedication of the National Cemetery at the Gettysburg Battlefield At the event the main address was given by former US Secretary of State and former Massachusetts governor Edward Everett President Lincoln who was at the event wasn't even listed as a speaker on the event's program Everett delivered a 13,000-word address that ran around two hours long. After that, Lincoln went up to deliver some brief remarks. They were ten sentences containing a total of 272 words. The speech lasted about three minutes. Almost all Americans have heard the Gettysburg Address. Many have memorized it, or at least memorized parts of it. Almost no one, myself included, has sat down and read a transcription of Everett's speech. that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people by the people for the people shall not perish from the earth. This speech was received in sort of a shrugging, nonplussed way by most of those who were there to hear it. Few paid much attention to it at the time. Historian Harry Stout writes, quote, what American memory has since elevated to the status of national scripture hardly evoked a ripple in the national consciousness of 1863, end quote. Edward Everett, for his part, seems to have appreciated, if nothing else, the concision of Lincoln's speech, and later wrote to Lincoln, quote, I should be glad if I could flatter myself that I came as near to the central idea of the occasion in two hours as you did in two minutes, end quote many were much harder on the speech. The Chicago Times, a Democratic Party paper, said of the Gettysburg Address, quote, the cheek of every American must tingle with shame as he reads the silly, flat, and dishwatery utterances of the man who has to be pointed out to intelligent foreigners as the President of the United States, end quote. The Times of London said of the Address, quote, the inauguration of the ceremony at Gettysburg was an imposing ceremony only rendered somewhat flat by the nature of Mr. Everett's lecture and ludicrous by some of the luckless sallies of that poor President Lincoln." End quote. And yet this speech has been canonized into perhaps the central scripture of the post 1865 American civil religion canon. An interesting thing to note about this speech and of many of the other speeches Lincoln delivered over the remainder of the war and the remainder of his life was its emphasis on nationalism as now defined by identification with the federal government rather than with the states as being the nation in question. As historian Jeffrey Hummel points out, quote, abandoning the word union, Lincoln instead called the U.S. a nation a total of five times during his short Gettysburg Address, in contrast to his predecessors who tended to avoid the term, end quote. And Lincoln himself tended to avoid the term and mostly speak of the union up until around the Gettysburg Address. And then suddenly his speeches talk less and less about the union and more and more about the nation as this singular entity. One later critic of Lincoln who was not very impressed by the Gettysburg Address, I mean, who was impressed by it as a piece of rhetoric, but not by its actual message and substance, was the early 20th century writer H. L. Mencken. And he wrote this about Lincoln and the Gettysburg Address in 1922. Quote, It was his eloquence that probably brought him to his great estate. Like William Jennings Bryan, he was a dark horse made suddenly formidable by fortunate rhetoric. The Douglas debate launched him and the Cooper Union speech got him the presidency. This talent for emotional utterance, this gift for making phrases that enchanted the plain people, was an accomplishment of late growth. His early speeches were mere empty fireworks, but in middle life he purged his style of ornament and it became almost baldly simple and it is for that simplicity that he is remembered today. The Gettysburg speech is at once the shortest and the most famous oration in American history. Put beside it, all the whoopings of the Webster's Sumner's and Everett's seem gaudy and silly. It is eloquence brought to a pellucid and almost childlike perfection, the highest emotion reduced to one graceful and irresistible gesture. Nothing else precisely like it is to be found in the whole range of oratory— Lincoln himself never even remotely approached it. It is genuinely stupendous. But let us not forget that it is oratory, not logic, beauty, not sense. Think of the argument in it. Put it into the cold words of every day. The doctrine is simply this, that the Union soldiers who died at Gettysburg sacrificed their lives to the cause of self-determination, that government of the people, by the people, for the people should not perish from the earth it is difficult to imagine anything more untrue. The Union soldiers in that battle actually fought against self-determination. It was the Confederates who fought for the right of their people to govern themselves. What was the practical effect of the Battle of Gettysburg? What else than the destruction of the old sovereignty of the states, i.e. of the people of the states? the Confederates went into battle an absolutely free people. They came out with their freedom subject to the supervision and vote of the rest of the country, and for nearly twenty years that vote was so effective that they enjoyed scarcely any freedom at all. Am I the first American to note the fundamental nonsensicality of the Gettysburg Address? If so, I plead my aesthetic joy in it in amelioration of the sacrilege." Obviously, if you've listened to this series up till now, you'll know that I don't agree with everything Mencken said in that statement, especially about the Confederates being an absolutely free people before the Civil War, or at least before they they lost the Civil War and that sort of thing. And I think he goes too far on a few things. But that said, I think he does a good job of pointing out the logical flaws with the central concept of Lincoln's speech which is essentially that allowing the South to govern itself independently is a mortal threat to the concept of representative Republican government worldwide. As nonsensical as this notion may be to the coldly rational mind, Lincoln seems to have been a true believer in it, and so were many of his soldiers, particularly his officers. They were steeped, In a nationalist mythology, a sort of religious-like dogma that the Union was this sacred, eternal, indivisible idol. And these sorts of sentiments, of course, would make it into the Pledge of Allegiance in the 1890s. And when you look at the statements and writings of a lot of the Union officers, it seems the more educated they were, the more they believed in this civil religion. This sort of stuff will probably come up again when I do an episode examining the lower and mid-level soldiers' perspectives of the war. You know, the enlisted men and the low and mid-level officers, which when I cover it will include some discussion of what we can glean about their motivations and their beliefs. But for now, I'll just leave it at that, that it was a common belief amongst the ardently pro-war people of the North that if the South were allowed to govern itself, this would somehow doom small-r Republican government in the United States and also worldwide. Just because an idea is logically absurd doesn't mean people won't passionately believe in it and even fight and die for it. The fact that of all present-day political factions in the United States, it's probably the neoconservatives who, more than anyone else, worship the Gettysburg Address, that fact should give a sane person pause. These people, the neoconservatives, have interpreted the Gettysburg Address to be a call for the United States to spread its system by force of arms around the world. An American Trotskyism, if you will. And given how many American neocons actually used to be real Trotskyists, perhaps it isn't surprising that they might want to be the Johnny Appleseeds of global revolution and, uh, Not surprising that they would use Lincoln's pretty sounding but logically flawed sermon speeches as their sacred scriptures. So in closing out this episode, I just want to reiterate, if Ambrose Burnside is a fool for what he ordered the Army of the Potomac to attempt at Fredericksburg, then Robert E. Lee is at least as much of a fool for ordering Pickett's charge. Like I said before, there's a touch of the same feeling of the 1916 British offensive on the Somme in Gettysburg as there was at Fredericksburg, as far as the whole concept of more valor, less judgment. Men being sent to their doom en masse as lemming-like cannon fodder in a completely idiotic frontal assault against a well-prepared and dug-in enemy. The truth is, Lee had looked so good in the war up until this point primarily because the men he'd faced at the helm of the Army of the Potomac had been severely flawed, to put it charitably. Men like George McClellan, Ambrose Burnside, Joseph Hooker, and so on were all in different ways not competent to command that army well. All it took was a little bit of speed and decisiveness and aggression on Lee's part, and he could usually get the better of those commanders because they were, up through the summer of 1863, not terribly competent. George Meade may not have been a genius, but he was competent, and given the Army of the Potomac's superior resources, that's all it took to make the difference, just competence. Historians still disagree over whether the fall of Vicksburg and the resultant Union supremacy on the Mississippi or the Confederate defeat at the Battle of Gettysburg was more important to the ultimate Confederate loss in the war. While I lean more towards Vicksburg, really, I think that's an argument that's ultimately impossible to decisively and objectively settle for certain. My own view is that the taking of Vicksburg was more important to the actual kind of military, economic and logistical nuts and bolts sort of aspect of the war. But that Gettysburg was probably more important in another realm, one that is intangible, but certainly very important to wars, and that is politics and public opinion. I think Gettysburg and the press it received probably did more to bolster northern public opinion in favor of the war effort than the fall of Vicksburg did at the time, simply because of the way that Gettysburg was fixated upon by the press and by the public. But regardless of all that, what is certain is that these two massive Confederate losses coming in rapid succession on consecutive days certainly made the odds against the Confederacy even more unfavorable. Among other things, these two losses made any possible British and or French recognition and support of the Confederacy extremely unlikely. By the way, I will probably address the diplomatic and international ramifications of this war in a future episode. That said, these two victories didn't make Confederate victory impossible, as evidenced by the fact that the war still went on for another 21 months, and there would still be some Confederate victories here and there along the way. But the Confederate military never really regained the role they'd been on prior to Vicksburg and Gettysburg, and the possibility of one big decisive win for Robert E. Lee became even more unrealistic than it had been previously. But there still remained one plausible scenario in which the South might perhaps have won its independence, and that is if they managed despite not winning decisive victories, to simply make the war so costly and drawn out for the Union that the public and many in Congress might turn against it, and as a result perhaps might decide to not re-elect Lincoln and might instead decide to re-elect a president and a Congress that was friendly to the idea of negotiating an end of the war with the South, because after all, 1864 would be an election year. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Check out the website, profcj.org, or you can just put in DangerousHistoryPodcast.com to get the show notes for this and every other Dangerous History Podcast episode. While you're there, you can email subscribe to the site over in the right-hand side. And if you put in your email address there and subscribe, you won't get any spam or anything like that from me, no junk email. You'll simply get an email notification every time something new is posted at my website. You can follow me and the show on Facebook and Twitter as well, and you can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, however you prefer to consume your podcasts. If you enjoy and appreciate this show, there are many different ways you can help me keep this show going, growing, and constantly improving. One easy way is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History Podcast to those you think might appreciate it who don't already know about it. And you can also help the show out by leaving ratings or reviews in venues such as iTunes, which helps the podcast get ranked more highly. If you would like to help out the show financially, there are many ways to do so, and you'll find them at profcj.org donate. And one of the best Most helpful is to sign up to support the show via Patreon at patreon.com slash profcj. And if you pledge a contribution of at least $5 per month or more, you'll have access to bonus episodes that I publish in Patreon available nowhere else, as well as the ability to join the Dangerous History podcast, Scholar Warriors, private Facebook group. You can also make one-time or recurring donations via PayPal, and you can donate via Bitcoin as well. And of course, if you buy things from any of my Amazon affiliate links or my A-Books affiliate links, go through those links, then do your shopping as normal, and the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small commission at no additional cost to you. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.